Hey creeps, I'm Taylor and this is TGI Crime Day. Hello and welcome to TGI Crime Day. Let's get some business out of the way. First of all, thank you for clicking on this episode. I'm so happy you're here. If you end up loving it, and I hope you do, I hope you will subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so we can grow this little creep squad family. Second, I am working on some super cool episodes for Halloween and would love to do an episode of your listener stories. Spooky ghost stories, your town's urban legends, uh, the murder that happened in your hometown that you'll never forget, and everything in between all of those things. So email those to me at tgicrimeday at gmail.com. I also have this listed on my Instagram, so if you need to find it that way, you can totally do that. Um, And yeah, send those to me, and you can have a chance to have them featured on my Listener Files episode. Uh, I would really love to get to a point where we can do these, like, regularly, so send them in, even if you're listening to this after Halloween. Okay, so last week on my Instagram, I asked you guys what true crime... Why am I having such a hard time saying that word today? true crime cases you would like to hear on this podcast by the way uh instagram is at tgi crime day go follow me uh anyway so my friend darby came through with an amazing recommendation i live in utah so i've heard of this in passing over the years but i had no idea how insane this story truly was um when i started my invest googling the first hit that came up was just the basic wikipedia rundown it just gives a case overview lists the victims and the perpetrators and then it says weapons used In this case, it said, weapons used, gun, drain cleaner, ballpoint pen. Buckle in, because it's absolutely as horrible as it sounds. On the evening of April 22nd, 1974, Stanley Walker, age 20, and Sherry Michelle Ansley, age 18, were getting ready to close down the hi-fi shop in Ogden, Utah. And just to clarify, some of the articles I read referred to her as Sherry, but from what I saw, she went by her middle name, Michelle. So moving forward, I will be calling her Michelle. The Hi-Fi Shop was a stereo equipment store that was located on Washington Boulevard in a strip mall in downtown Ogden. Stanley and Michelle were cleaning up the shop to close for the evening when two young men entered the store carrying handguns. These men were Pierre Del Shelby and William Andrews. They were both 19-year-old Air Force airmen stationed at Hill Air Force Base located near the Hi-Fi Shop. Um, Another name that I saw listed multiple different ways was Pierre Del Shelby. Sometimes it was Dale Pierre. Sometimes it was Dale Shelby Pierre. Um, I actually read later on in this case that after his conviction, spoiler alert, uh, he changed his name 27 times, switching around middle and first and last names in an attempt to kind of save his family from the shame of being associated with him. So that might be why it's listed so many ways. Moving forward, I will be calling him Dale since that seems to be the name most used. Moving on. Let's talk a little bit about these two men. Dale Pierre Shelby grew up in Trinidad before moving to the United States in 1970. He was described as a troublemaker as a kid, even though his parents tried really hard to teach him right from wrong. Three years after moving to the U.S., he joined the Air Force and was stationed at Hill Air Force Base in Layton, Utah, in September of 1973. Less than a month later, Dale became the main suspect in the murder of Air Force Sergeant Edward Jefferson. To give a quick overview of that case, uh, one day in early October of 1973, Dale and Edward were at Edward's apartment when Edward realized his keys had gone missing. Dale helped him to search the apartment with no luck. Dale returned to Edward's apartment the next day and miraculously, wouldn't you know it, the keys reappeared. 
Edward was immediately suspicious and changed the locks on his door and his car ignition just in case. Edward confronted Dale about the keys and Dale denied knowing anything about them. Edward was later found murdered in his apartment um, and he was brutally stabbed in the face and head by a bayonet. Yes, a bayonet. It came out that someone had taken Edward's keys to be duplicated at a shop on base and the person who got the duplicates signed their name as Curtis Alexander. The more the police looked into this name, they realized that it was not a real person. It was not associated with anyone living on base at the time. So after doing multiple witness interviews, they were able to make the connection to Dale Pierre Shelby. However, this was back before DNA, and there just wasn't enough evidence to make an arrest or convict him, so this case was left unsolved. People who knew Dale said that he had a very violent temper and got angry when he did not get his way. From what I read... William Andrews was described as being very well-behaved and having a normal childhood. He grew up in Virginia and was also stationed at Hill Air Force Base in 1973. When he arrived in Utah, he made many friends very quickly, but eventually those friends cut ties with William because of his friendship with Dale. Shocking that nobody wanted to be around Dale because of his temper and horrible attitude. Okay, back to the hi-fi shop. Dale and William took Stanley and Michelle down to the basement of the shop and tied them up. They then began to rob the store, taking stolen items out to a van that they had waiting in the parking lot. Uh, while Dale and William were in the process of robbing the store, Courtney Nesbitt walked into the store looking for Stanley. Courtney was only 16 years old and a student at the nearby Ogden High School. He had been on his way home from running an errand when he decided to stop by the shop. Courtney was also threatened at gunpoint and taken down to the basement and tied up with the others. Not too long after Courtney was taken hostage, Stanley's father, Oren Walker, entered the shop. Oren was looking for Stanley since he'd expected him home hours before and was getting worried about his son. He was also taken hostage and tied up in the basement. For Dale and William, their robbery had been interrupted and was beginning to get complicated with these four hostages. You know how multitasking can be. Uh, they decided that they needed to do something about this issue and Dale asked William to go get something from their van. William came back with a bottle and a brown paper bag and began pouring blue liquid into a cup. He handed the cup to Oren and told him to give the cup to the others and distribute this liquid to them. Oren, of course, refuses to take the cup and is punished by being gagged and left laying face down while William moves on to the others. At this point, they are interrupted again a final time by Courtney's mom, Carol Nesbitt, who also came looking for her son when he didn't return home. She is also taken hostage, tied up, and placed next to her son. Okay, so one more item of business. I'm not generally going to give you trigger warnings in this podcast because, like, you clicked on a true crime podcast, so trigger warning alert all the time. But I am going to warn you that we are headed into rough waters. Things are going to get bad, then they're going to get even worse, but then, don't worry, there will be a slight upturn because there is some justice. Let's get into the part I'm avoiding. Now there are five total hostages in this basement, and Dale and William are done dealing with interruptions. They want to get this taken care of, they want to get the stuff out of the store, and they want to leave. They prop Stanley, Michelle, and Courtney, and Carol into sitting positions while Oren is left face down. William gets the liquid back out and tells the hostages that it is vodka laced with sleeping pills and forces Courtney, Carol, and Stanley to drink it. Unfortunately, because these people are insane, it's absolutely not vodka laced with sleeping pills. It is actually an industrial strength drain cleaner with the active ingredient sodium hydroxide. Sodium hydroxide is extremely corrosive. It's found in a lot of cleaning products. Uh, I would assume that, especially back in the 70s, they kind of just used it willy-nilly. I hope it's not as 
prevalent today. Anyways, moving on. It's also extremely dangerous when it comes in contact with your skin. So, of course, as soon as they drink it, they all experience immediate blisters and burns on their mouths and tongues, and their throats are searing from the liquid. It burns their skin and begins to pull the flesh away from their mouths. I hate this so much, I'm literally sweating. Too bad I don't have a deodorant sponsor. Maybe someday. At this point, Michelle is begging them to stop. She is begging for their lives. She is pleading with them to end this and let them go or to just finish robbing the store and leave them there. Uh, But, of course, they don't listen to her. She, at this point, is not forced to drink the drain cleaner. Carol, Courtney, and Stanley are all screaming and convulsing from the pain, and this angers Dale and William because they're monsters. So they try to silence them by putting duct tape over their mouths, but it won't stick because of the blisters and oozing sores on their faces. I hate it. Yikes of bikes. I hate it. Oren is the last person to drink the drain cleaner. He actually watched what happened to the others and was able to get most of the liquid out of his mouth, by screaming and faking convulsions. So now that they have distributed the drain cleaner to some of the hostages, Dale and William are starting to panic. They have all of these stolen items waiting in their van and five hostages. They reportedly were angry that it was taking so long for the drain cleaner to kill their victims. I, that bothers me so much. Like, seriously, I'm so sorry to inconvenience you by making you wait around for me while I drank this drain cleaner. I just have so many words for these two, but it's not that kind of podcast. So we're moving on. The drain cleaner isn't working, so Dale decides that he is going to start shooting their hostages. He shoots Carol and Courtney in the back of their heads. He shoots Oren, shoots at Oren, but misses. He shoots Stanley and then shoots at Oren again, this time hitting him in the back of the head. And as if she has not been through enough already, Michelle is then forced at gunpoint to undress. Dale repeatedly, brutally rapes her in the corner of the basement, and then she is taken back to the rest of the hostages and shot as well. Unfortunately, we are not out of the woods yet. Dale and William realize that Oren is still somehow alive. Dale wraps a wire around his neck and tries to strangle him, which, again, doesn't work. And if you remember at the top of the episode, I mentioned that three weapons were used in this case. I hope you're sitting down for this one. For some reason, because I don't know, he's insane, Dale decides to insert a ballpoint pen into Oren's ear. He then stomps on the end of the pen until it breaks Oren's eardrum and exits out of the side of his throat. Okay, deep breath. This whole case makes me want to scream. It's just so needlessly violent and disturbing. First of all, they shouldn't have even been in that situation in the first place. Second of all, they could have left at any point. They could have just taken the stolen items and left everyone alone. There is the need to brutally torture these people. It just makes me so mad. Okay, rant over. Dale and William finally finish robbing the store and leave. A few hours later, Oren's wife and other son decide to go look for Oren and Stanley because neither of them have returned home for the evening. I'm assuming the front door of the hi-fi shop was locked because they walked around to the back door, which is where the basement entrance is. This is where Oren's other son, they didn't list his name, they just said Oren's other son, hears noises coming from the basement. He breaks down the back door, they go in and they find the scene. At this point, Oren's wife calls 911. Stanley and Michelle are pronounced dead at the scene. Carol lives long enough to be loaded into an ambulance and rushed to the hospital, but unfortunately is pronounced dead on arrival. And somehow, both Courtney and Oren are still alive and rushed to the hospital. They both survived this horrendous attack but would both face very long roads to recovery. 
Just a few hours after the news breaks of the murders and robbery, the Ogden police get a call from a man who is an officer in the Air Force. This was an anonymous caller that called to tell the police that months earlier, William told him, quote, One of these days, I'm going to rob that hi-fi shop, and if anybody gets in the way, I'm going to kill them. Hi. Let's just make it a rule that if someone says something absolutely bananas to you like that, just call the police immediately. Don't wait months until they actually do it. Then again, it was the 70s, and that Air Force officer probably was like, Oh, William, you're such a nut, and then ignored it because, hi, the 70s. Um, but I am really glad that this person came forward, so I guess I should tell him good job instead of making fun of him for waiting so long. This did play a really big part in the investigation, and it gives the police somewhere to start looking. So, if you know something, tell the police all the time. Later that same night, the Ogden police get another insanely helpful phone call. A couple of teenage boys were dumpster diving near Hill Air Force Base when they found wallets and purses. They opened them up, and inside they recognized the IDs of the victims that they'd seen earlier on the news of the hi-fi attacks. I just can't help but think of the fact that these dorky teenagers were rolling around in a big dumpster. If they hadn't been doing this, the evidence would have just been taken to the dump, or like to the landfill, and never to be seen again. They would have never been able to connect all of the dots. See, this is the fun kind of 70s kookiness that we can get behind, not the scary kind of 70s kookiness. Usually I would never ever dumpster dive uh, or tell you to dumpster dive, but hey, if you're in there, dig around a little for some crime evidence. <gasps> Wait a minute. I need to know. Who are these teens now? Who are these boys that called the cops that found these bags? If this is like your crazy Uncle Robbie, please send me an email. Moving on. Police and detectives show up, show up to the dumpster and start making a big show about the investigation. Of course, because as humans, we're super nosy. Um, a group of people, including a bunch of the airmen from the base, show up to see what's going on. And Dale and William are in this crowd. The detective has a plan to find a lead. He starts dramatically pulling things out of the dumpster with tongs and holding up the pieces of evidence for everyone to see. And while he's doing this, he is observing the crowd. And most of the people are standing back, watching in shock or silence, but not Dale and William. They are pacing back and forth, they're speaking loudly, and they're making frantic gestures with their hands. I don't know what that means, but that's how it was described. And I just imagine them, like, stomping back and forth, being nuts. And I also like to imagine that this detective was in a suit, standing in the dumpster with a banana peel on his head, waving around this evidence. And then he looks into the crowd and sees Dale and William acting crazy, and is like, there they are. Obviously, I'm editorializing, but that's how the movie plays out in my brain. The police were able to get a search warrant for Dale and William's barracks based on their behavior at the dumpster drama and the anonymous phone call about William's threats. They are both taken into custody and the police begin their search. In the barracks, police find flyers, tons of flyers, from the hi-fi shop. And as they lift at the corner of the carpet, they find a piece of paper that was folded in half between the carpet and the padding. They open it up to find a lease agreement for a storage unit about a block from the hi-fi shop. They, of course, got a warrant for the storage unit, and inside they found stereo equipment and were able to match the serial numbers to the inventory from the hi-fi shop. They also found, you guessed it, a half-empty bottle of industrial drain cleaner. Dale and William are formally arrested and charged with first-degree murder and aggravated robbery. It's at this point that we learn that there was another man that was somehow involved. He was also an Air Force airman, and his name was Keith Roberts. He apparently was waiting in the getaway van, and he is also arrested for the murders. The police and the detective work in this case was just 
chef's kiss, phenomenally done. One of the detectives was later given an award from the Utah branch of the Justice Department, and this case is still used as an example in FBI trainings. Dale, William, and Keith are all put into a joint trial that is held in Farmington, Utah that begins on November 15, 1974. During the trial, it was revealed that Dale and William had planned the robbery, knowing that they would kill anyone that got in the way. In the months leading up to the robbery, they were looking for a way to quietly and cleanly commit the murders. This is when they saw the movie Magnum Force. In the movie, a sex worker, none of the articles said sex worker, but that's the word we use around here because it's 2020. Anyway, this woman is forced to drink drain cleaner, and it kills her instantly in the film. Unfortunately, Dylan and William thought this was a brilliant idea and decided they would use it for their own crime. In the trial, Oren was the star witness for the prosecution and bravely testified against his attackers, reliving every detail of that entire night. Courtney was unable to testify because he had suffered amnesia and was still in the hospital recovering from his injuries. However, his father, Byron, did testify on his behalf. On November 14th, 1974, Dale and William were both convicted for the murder and robbery charges. Keith was convicted of robbery charges because they couldn't prove that he had anything to do with the actual murders. Four days later, Dale and William were sentenced to death by lethal injection. Keith was sentenced to five years to life for his part in the crime, and um, which was just driving the getaway vehicle, so that seems a little heavy-handed to me, but witnesses said he was not present at the crime scene. He still ended up getting that five years to life sentence. After exhausting all of his appeals, Dale Pierre Shelby was executed by lethal injection on August 28, 1987. Dale requested that the money in his account, around $29, was left to William. The process of William's execution went a little bit differently. Many appeals were made on his behalf, and many people in the community and the country felt that his sentence should be lessened. Technically, William hadn't killed any of the victims. And in an interview, he stated that he was a 19-year-old kid who was following an angry leader who convinced him to do all of these things. When he showed up that day, it was not his intention to kill anyone. However, we know that that's not true because he admitted to being the one who bought the drain cleaner and he gave it to the victims. There was also that phone call from an anonymous Air Force officer who said that William told him that he wanted to rob the hi-fi shop and would murder anyone who got in the way. There was also a a large racial divide in this case and um, because of this conviction, the perpetrators were all black, the victims and the jury were all white. This could absolutely cause racial tension, um, especially back in the 70s. The NAACP argued that the sentence was problematic because there were other cases with white perpetrators that were not convicted as heavily. I am by no means saying that they should have let William off easy. He did buy the drain cleaner, and he did give it to the victims with the intent of killing them. He assumed that it was going to kill them. That was their whole plan. So that's not really, you can't say that you weren't trying to kill them. You They happened to not die from that, but that was still your intention. However, Dale was the one who actually pulled the trigger, killing Carol, Stanley, and Michelle. In my opinion, the death penalty conviction for William does seem a bit heavy-handed. It would have made sense to charge him with aggravated robbery and attempted murder and give him life in prison. I don't think attempted murder gets um, a death penalty conviction usually. I don't like what he did. I think it's despicable, and I think it's disgusting The excuse of being young is stupid, and that makes absolutely no sense. He deserved to be heavily punished for his participation in this crime. But it gets really tricky when you get into the death penalty, which is a topic for another day. As William's execution date got closer, 
Many people were fighting for his conviction to be changed to life in prison for his part in the crime instead of the death penalty. But on July 30th, 1992, William was executed by lethal injection. Keith Roberts was sentenced for his participation in the robbery, and he, char- or he served 13 years and was paroled in May of 1987. After serving his prison sentence, Keith stayed out of trouble and moved to Oklahoma to live with relatives. In a 1989 article in The Oklahoman, it stated that Keith uh, was following his parole orders and staying out of trouble. This article also mentioned the fact that he served a much longer sentence than normal for an armed robbery. Normally, the um, highest sentence that you can get for an armed robbery is 48 months. That was back in 1989. I'm not sure what that is today. But he did serve a lot longer than most people who were convicted of armed robbery. While he was incarcerated, Keith worked as an orderly at the prison and spoke to junior high and high school students about staying out of a life of crime. Keith passed away in 1992 at 38 years old. I was unable to find his cause of death. After surviving the attacks in 1974, Courtney spent 266 days in the hospital recovering from his injuries. He was left with permanent brain damage and a lot of other health complications. He was able to return to high school and graduate, but eventually he was forced to drop out of college because of his health problems and memory issues. Courtney and his family became the subject of a book that was written by Gary Kinder, Kinder? Kinder? called Victim, The Other Side of Murder. Gary Kinder wanted to write the book to show the story of the victims instead of focusing on the killers, which was usually the case for true crime novels, especially around this time. Um, He worked really hard to put together this story with Courtney's father, Byron, and Byron had a huge role in creating this book and helping to tell the story of what happened that night at the hi-fi shop. In 1991, this book was turned into a made-for-TV movie called Aftermath, A Test of Love. Courtney eventually moved to Seattle, where he passed away in 2002 at age 44. And as we know, Oren also survived this attack. Um, Oren suffered major burns to his throat and mouth and permanent damage to his eardrum, of course. In an AP News article from 1987, Oren shared some of the details firsthand of what happened that night. He finishes the article by saying that their whole family has been changed forever by what happened that day. He lost one of his sons, and his wife and other son were the ones to find this horrific scene. Oren said that their younger son slept on the floor of their bedroom for a year and refused to go downstairs into their basement because of the trauma that he experienced at the scene of the crime. He also said that his wife spent a lot of time in bed trying to forget um, the horrific events of that night. The fact that he survived all that he went through and was brave enough to testify and to speak about that night is just incredible to me, and I truly hope that his family was able to find peace, at least some portion of peace, after everything that they went through. Oren passed away at age 69 in February of 2000.